Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Music Business Podcast. Today, we do not have Sam Heisel because he actually had a medical emergency. So I'm going to handle the intro and outro and episode myself today. But I'm really, really excited to announce my guest today, which is who is Dominique Flanagan. He's a co-founder of a record label called Lucky Me. Now, for those who don't know, Lucky Me is a label that's based in the UK. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with some of their artists, Bauer, Hudson Mohawk, Jacques Green Tonight, Cashmere Cat, and the list goes on. So um, super excited to get him on. We go through a little bit of the Lucky Me um, history, kind of, you know, what came about about Lucky Me when it started uh, as early as when they found Hudson Mohawk in 2002, uh, how they built that relationship. And a lot of what we get into today, in addition to Bauer's nomination for Best Dance Electronic Album, for Planets Mad, we get into what it's like in those early stages building a label from the ground up. We get into how they've kind of had this really super strong brand for artists that are quote unquote left field and how they've been adopted to the mainstream. And we talk about generally label structure and how that kind of can defer from a small nimble company to a much larger company. Um, The conversation that we had today is super fun, you know, um, I lost track of time in the middle of it a few times because of the the back and forth that we were able to have. And we ended up speaking for 30 minutes again outside of the episode after the episode, after it ended, just to kind of give you a, an idea of the energy that, that, that I felt and that he felt. So super excited for people to hear this. Super excited for people to listen to it. Lucky Me is a legendary label and super, super glad that we got him on. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, Dom. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for coming out virtually, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, Sam couldn't be here today because he broke his collarbone. I'll say that in the intro and outro. But uh, uh, (laughs) yeah, he's he's uh, recovering. But um, super super excited to get you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Of course. And where are you where are you located at this moment? So I'm in London. I've been in London for ten years now. The the record label started in Scotland, but we we moved here a, a long time ago. Yeah, London's one of my favorite cities. It's it's one of those places that reminds me of New York, but you're still close to, you know, Rome, Paris, Florence, all these places that take an hour and a half, two hours to get to. And but from New York, they take like yeah, eight. Yeah, I never take advantage <laughs> so, of that. I really should do that more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, know. when, when things come back, now. man, that's that's what you gotta do. That's what you gotta Big do. Time. Big cool. Time. Um, so I guess like and and obviously a lot of this will overlap with with your experience at Lucky Me, but you know, one thing we like to ask guests in the beginning, just to kind of get a primer on where they come from, but also to give people kind of a little more guidance to how they enter the music industry. Like, what do you, what would you consider your first big break in the music industry? And that may overlap with the first big break at Lucky Me, or you may have had something before. Um, the first big break in the music industry for us, I would probably qualify this. It's an interesting one. There's, there's a few, I, I was, we all made music together before we launched the record label. So that would be uh-huh. myself and my partner, Martin Flynn and uh, Hudson Mohawk and uh, Mike Slot. So the, the four of us were making music together in Glasgow. And um, 
So we, we had some wins when we were making music, just as artists. Right. The, the first sort of significant win for the record label, I, I think you would have said, would win our first release, which is the Hudson Mohawk Says Oops release, which is like these um, R&B, like bootleg, um, sort of like Hudmo flipping, mm-hmm. some like old crunk records and R&B records. And it was our first release. We distributed it from Glasgow. Um, and then that just like sold out super quick. And it was like the first time that you got that inkling that maybe there was a living to be made in this. And then I, I guess there's been like significant milestones along the way, Hudson Mohawk signing to Warp, right. which made for our proximity to Warp as a company and ultimately led to the partnership with Warp that we have. Um, so, but it's all been fairly a, a steady trajectory set by that first record. I would say that's our first win. Right. Awesome. How did you, how did you guys uh, get connected with Hudson Mohawk just out of curiosity? He was in a scratch contest when he was like 15. It was like the local ITFs and uh, was it ITF or DMC? I think it was ITFs he won. And I went to see it as like a fan of hip hop at the time and was mm-hmm. into that sort of thing. And Martin, who was like my best bud, we went to the, to the show together and Hudmo was just the hot shit youngest guy on there but the sensibility of stuff he was playing was really different to everyone else. Like scratch contest stuff at the time was really, um, I mean, there was just loads of battle breaks and loads of loops and stuff like that, but he was going up there and playing loads of big jiggy records and cutting over them and stuff. And he played Ludacris and stuff like that. He was 15, you said? Yeah, and he was (laughs) incredible. He was so, so good. He, He totally styled it at the time. And I think I just went over to him afterwards and just told him how good it was. I mean, this is like, the Scottish regionals. I think he went on to win the UK at that. And he was like the youngest person to win the UK DMC, I think. That's awesome. This is like before he was really Hudson Mohawk. He was still DJ Itchy or something. Like <laughs> a scratch name. And yeah. then we, I had just moved to Glasgow from Edinburgh. So I grew up in Edinburgh, which is the capital, 40 miles away from Glasgow. And then I, I went to study art school. So I was like 18. And then I started a little hip hop night and I asked him to be the DJ. Mm. And so he would still be like 15, 16. And so we had to like sneak him in and he would like <laughs> play records all night. And it was more of like a hip hop open mic thing. Right. And a tiny, tiny little bar. And that was the first thing, that, the first time we ever used the Lucky Me name was on that. It was the name for that club night. Oh, damn. That's awesome. That's awesome. Which kind yeah, of so leads this is like 2002. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's a long time ago. So you've so you've known him and been working with him like over half his life. Uh, yeah, I mean we were, te- <laughs> we, were we were teenagers. We really have. Yeah, we've all known each other a long time. That's awesome. Um, which kind of leads me to my next question: What was the vision for Lucky Me when it started, and how does that vision has it been manifested since then? I mean, I know you guys are in a, a few different things. You guys have an art studio as well, right? So, like, how does how does it expand from you know this? producer this 15 year old producer to kind of what it is now it's always just been a way of like um i mean it's still in the dna of the company that we have like a policy level is just like complete equity and no division from the staff to the artists and i mean that in terms of like we're always trying to make careers for everyone that's involved with it so the objective was always just like damn we are so far away from the center of the music industry Mm-hmm. How the hell do we make a living doing this? We're in love with this art. Like, how do we dedicate ourselves to that? Um, and so, uh, 
yeah, what was the question? I guess we just, we all just started doing it ourselves, our dance cells from like miles away from any seat of industry or anyone that could tell us what the deals ought to look like. And we just sort of tiptoed into it. Um, what was your question? What, what was the vision when it started and how does it operate now? The vision was just, yeah, make a living, pay rent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it's, uh, it's yeah, about what that means. The idea that maybe we're successful at this. I'm like, sort of adjusting that. And how do you, how do you build it into some sort of infrastructure that supports like more people being involved with it and breaking outside of the original proposition of this, which was, it used to be, very tribal it was just me mm-hmm. and my friends you know and mm-hmm. it was us like making a brand for ourselves and now it's like actually you know i'm getting older martin's getting older and it's like what do we think like how do we make this into a useful conceit that can facilitate whatever would come after mm-hmm. the point that we want to be in the club i think mm-hmm. that's like where i'm at now as i like stare ahead at the at 40 you know what i mean i'm like yeah seven right now and i'm thinking like i want lucky me to be here in 50 years what does that mean mm. so it's really it's yeah that's kind of the, the mo right now and never overlooking this idea that you've kind of got this sort of dual responsibility of course to the artists but also the people that work with you right right and there's something i want to highlight there which is you said your vision at first was just to like pay rent and essentially enjoy what you were doing um and i think that with the advent of social media and everything like that um, everyone has gotten into this like comparing game of when they start a label, they want to be the next, you know, Warner music group or things like that. But, you know, even the way that, even the way your origin story started with Hudson Mohawk, it all started from, yo, this is just a super dope person. Like, like, let's see what, let's see what we can do and like build from there. Um, and, you know, I get questions a lot about technically how to start labels, which will lead me to my next question, but, um, how to start labels or what some things that you should be looking after. And obviously that's what we're going to get into a little bit today so people can get, on the right foot immediately, but at the same time, you know, there also has to be a little bit of, of lack of structure and just going after what you want and just having a good time with, with finding art that you truly believe in. I was just speaking with someone the other day. Um, I, you know, people, it, one, one of like the, the deadly things about the music industry, I think, is that people can forget where it all started, which is them being a fan. Um, and, you know, I would implore people that are kind of having these conversations with me to also think about where their fandom is before they start a label, before they work with an artist and, and kind of and kind of go from there. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree with that. I guess I've always had this feeling or I had a very quick realization when I was making music with the guys who went on to be known as musicians mm-hmm. was that it, it takes a lot of time and alternative skills to do I was just like intuitively the guy that designed the MySpace. And then you find yourself like, oh, right, shit, I've just made a career out of being that guy. Yeah. (laughs) But I've always, it became very obvious to me that like musicians should specialize and be the best they can be in terms of the music. But that doesn't necessarily parlay into like understanding the, the outside context of how their music should be interpreted or communicated Mm -hmm. or marketed. Mm -hmm. And that there was scope to do that do a good job of that and that in itself would be as good a contribution as one could make to the art and so yeah it's like another part of it and I think that's something that's um as the narrative of like being a true like independent without a label and being um like lone wolf um and and being responsible for all facets of your work has like become like a, a, 
a big issue in the music industry. Mm -hmm. For me, I've, I've always been a bit cynical of that, I think, because I was always like, well, Hudmo just wants to make music, actually. He's not really mm -hmm. fussed on all these other aspects. And like through that relationship, just as friends, I fell into all these other responsibilities. And now it's like, but I don't, I don't make that like clear delineation of like all oh, the art is happening over here. And then yeah. there's all this objective, like other decision-making right. structure for music and of the, well, the record label is a service and it needs to work for its value and it needs to give that back to the artist. Exactly. You do that by having an understanding of like audiences and like how the music will probably be interpreted. And I think right. that is like, takes a nuance. It's like in a way, I don't want the artist to be like staring at their phone, knowing necessarily how things are doing. I want them to just feel a certain creative freedom. Yeah. And we can facilitate it another way. Um, sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but yeah, that's yeah. kind of how I've been thinking of it. And it's like, yeah, I think uh, just being really close to the art, even in terms of the marketing and the creative that we make. Right, right, exactly. I totally agree. Um, which kind of leads me to my next thing. Like when, when you're starting, when you're starting a label, um, obviously, you know, hindsight's 2020 and some of this would be more clear now than, you know, when you started, you know, many years ago, but what are the first few departments or roles that you need to start a business and a record label in general, just for people who may want to kind of get hit the ground running on starting their own sort of venture? Um, I'm so aware when you ask me a question like that, that I've not, you know, I've had very limited jobs in the music industry because it's always, I've always done the same thing and it feels yeah. like a very direct path of progress to where we are now yeah uh, the point that i became familiar with the roles of a record label besides like reading passman and like reading occasional books when i was a teenager to try and understand what the music industry was my first experience was being landed as an a and r at walk records in london mm -hmm. and walking and actually the guy that employed me was off on the, the week that i started so it was just me sat in the office and I knew individuals in the room, but I was trying to work out whoever, like on that week they were launching the Grizzly Bear album and Flying Lotus until the quiet comes. And I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing as an A&R <laughs> there. And trying to understand like, okay, that's the product manager. What, right. What does that mean? Because lucky me, it operated for, I think like three or four years kind of properly, you know, right. just ourselves, like just do it. You're the guy that does whatever needs done. You don't give it a name. You're not the head of international. You just happen to have the relationship with the guy in France or whatever. We didn't give ourselves titles until that point. We had just always done it. Um, so I would say the for like for people who are starting out is to approach it the way that we did, which is just to sort of just you, everyone's going to have their natural places where they feel more confident and to follow your own skill set and then mm -hmm. just try and like get 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 in there if, you, if your value is not I, I would have said like for us it was the design and the sort of the early marketing that we could bring to projects that would make them steal people's attention quickly but if you were just like an email warrior then mm -hmm. there's other ways that you could be out there like procuring opportunity for the artist so you would just be like an A&R from the jump really right maybe that's a good answer it's just like it just starts with creative so it starts with the music it starts with the musical identity of what you're doing and um yeah just the ears i guess yeah when i worked at um eqt I actually you know we didn't have titles for almost the entire time that i was there uh because right. it was sort of it was sort of a similar sort of type thing where it was what do we have to do to help this artist succeed 
and to, to get their art to as many people as possible and then kind of lean into your strengths. And yeah. the result of that was a bunch of people saying that they did a bunch of different things, but it all worked, you know, because we all, we all leaned in on our strengths and it kind of grew from there. Yeah, man. I love that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's like, it's the scale of the team. We're currently working with like five people on the, the smallest stuff that we do. And then depending on the bigger projects, it scales up and all the divisions of work. So it can go up to like 10, you know, 10 or 12 people, I would have said for Bowers album. But on the sort of day-to-day of Lucky Me, it's a very small team. Mm-hmm. And so it has to be ex- expected that some of the roles are fluid. It's like, right. all right, we switch this live, someone can jump in and do it. We all need to have the keys to do that. And so we don't make these like hardline divisions, but I'm aware that like when you're bringing young people into the company as well, I, I, I sort of, as much as I say, I want everyone to be like a rock star and capable of like, doing all these <laughs> different things. Um, it can also give them like no mentorship and sort of no focus in terms of what yeah. they need to specialize in. So now I'm trying to learn a bit more about giving people clearer responsibilities. Yeah. So just making the sort of um, place that I'd, I'd want to work for that gives you the opportunity to, to offer a creative opinion. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give people like more honed responsibilities. In the past, it's been like, okay, there's my boy in New York and he just runs America for lucky. <laughs> he just has to America's our biggest market. There's one person in New York. Like, right. I think that's right. pretty practical. You know? Right, right. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Um, cool. So I kind of want to shift now to Lucky Me as a brand and the type of artists that you guys work with. Um, I know that's the bread and butter of kind of um, Lucky Me as a whole is uh, the, the type of artist you sign and the, the general energy and culture that you feel from the records that you guys release in, in such a real uh, awesome, unique sort of way. Um, so I guess my first question is like, you know, we talked a little bit about Hudson Mohawk, but like Bauer, Cashmere Cat, um, all these guys are obviously very respected in their fields um, and just in a you know, a lot of the other artists that you guys have signed, what do you kind of see in the artists you sign or want to sign? Um, and that may be a complex question, um, but, you know, then we can ask follow-up questions and have a good time kind of tackling that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big question for us. Um, it's a bit of a bold statement, but I'm, I think I am looking for, like, a degree of virtuosity in mm-hmm. artists that I work with. Like, I need right. to know the best. Right. Um, and that's a fluid idea, but like I, I need to know that like this isn't just like maybe a demo has been forwarded to me and it sort of picks my interest because it feels like it's something I've not heard of before. But mm. like I think being an AR since I guess like formally for like 10 years, I'm I'm looking to the second and third idea and I want to know that they've kind of they've got more behind that first that first great record, really. Mm. Um, I think something that, yeah, I, ju- I just need to know it's not all aesthetics. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not just yeah. like, it's not just this sort of veneer of like incredible production, able and tricks that would like potentially time out if they change software. <laughs> know that they're, that they're going to, that they're thinking in terms of music in a sort of, in a broader sense beyond beyond whatever their tools might be, even if that's piano or voice. Do you know what I mean? I think I'm always like, yeah. And they need to understand like a connection to culture too, which is an intuitive thing, which you can generally pick up just from a conversation with someone. That right. And 
like where their music fits in, what its purpose is. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. It's funny that you say you also ask uh, for more music uh, because I remember when I started uh, working in the music industry, I would send artists to the co-founder of my company and he'd be like, oh, this is tight. Like, can you send something else? And I'd never, and at first I didn't really understand why he asked that. I was like, yo, this album is great. It's awesome. Like what, what yeah. else is there to listen to? It sounds like you're just <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, oh, keep proving it. Yeah. Right, exactly. But you also need to see where that trajectory, what that trajectory looks like for the artist too. So not just like, you know, this one album they put out, this one song they put out, but what does that next step look like for them? And, and trying to get an idea as early as you can, what that next step looks like for them. Because he would always be like, yo, see, reach out and see if you could get any unreleased records. And then I would get like kind of nervous. I'd be like, damn, you want me to reach out to this artist and see if, they, see, if they, see if they'll send me unreleased records? But that's what he was trying to do, right? He was investigating. So I mm-hmm. think that makes like total sense. Yeah, it's about like just checking yourself for like at some point in the artist's career, they're bound to have like, you know, a degree of um, self-consciousness about like where this goes next. If you, If everyone does their job well and you get them to where they deserve to be off that sort of first idea of what turns them into a career artist right you know the deals that we do they're they're long-term investments and they're it's about building a career together so i want to know that you want to have a career in music in 10 years you know what i mean it's like yeah i want to know where this goes after like a successful first album and you don't have to know that now you know if you're speaking to a 17 year old of course there'd be a cycle if they said and it would be really <laughs> it would be really off-putting if like someone young had it all mapped out that would be really kind of unfun as well but i just because right. <laughs> the, the idea is that like we'll be in a different place because we'll be responding to whatever's popping culturally at that point as well and they will be in a different place and you want to be able to grow together but i think it like for me it helps to know that they are maybe they have like some primary inspiration that's not just like looking sideways at what's going on right now in the timeline or what's relevant right now, but they're thinking that they've they've kind of got some roots in music that you know is beyond is beyond this moment. Basically, I think that's a really important one that they can play some instruments is a good one for in particular. You know, and this will be different from more of the vocalist stuff that we'll work with in the future mm-hmm. and like these different types of artists. But the the bread and butter of what Lucky Me's been has been uh, producers and yeah it's always been useful there that beyond just being killer producers they can play and that's been like another metric that kind of like i've sussed out with new signings early is is if they because you're not going to get writer's block if you are really competent yeah no that's that's a that's a good thing to to kind of base um what that next step looks like with artists is you know, if you can't if you can't sit down and and, and take what's in your mind and, and put it on a keyboard or, or put it in a production software, then it's kind of like a ticking time bomb until you run out of ideas for that lane or you're, or you're no longer inspired in that lane. Um, that's super interesting, especially because, you know, we see a lot of labels now kind of look at um, not net, like they'll, they'll do the work of, of seeing, OK, does this artist have legs, but not necessarily does this artist just, just like know music? Like, do they just know music theory? Do they, do they know how to actually like play a piano and know the keys that they're playing, those sort of things? Um, and yeah. it's definitely it's definitely a way to go. And and I think you see that in the versatility of your of your uh, of your artists, you know, like the the general 
you know, I've been listening to Hudson Mohawk for over a decade and the, and, and the general sound of where he's gone has been able to change in the way that he wants it to change because you can hear that he knows music. You can feel that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, he did have a bit of music theory, but he didn't take it beyond high school. He did like an mm-hmm. essay course as well. But this is all like, he's very low key and quite humble about that stuff because it's just it's just like a normal like public school education in Glasgow. So he, he, But I knew him for like three years before he was like, Oh yeah, I did a bit of drums at school. And I was like, well, <laughs> that's why your fills are crazy. Like <laughs> and you know, it's little observations like he's got like a little sticky that's just like chord progressions and stuff that he likes that he'll just like you'll take note if he hears something on the radio or whatever. Like he is thinking in in a way that I don't, you know, a lot of people in his genre aren't really thinking like, and he's just um, and that sets him out. And like another example is in like 2015 or something, well, maybe even earlier, going to Sophie's studio in King's Cross and her playing like all these like almost like classic rock 70s Elton John ballads. But like the music that was coming out as like early Sophie was, of course, like absolutely insane, that shit. But like there was an integrity behind that music. That I think everyone can sort of tune into. It's like, all right, this person's really thinking about like songwriting. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. You know, which I like. I don't want to like condition myself to like just be looking for these like really cl- classical references. Of course, that's not what we do. We put a lot yeah. of free new dance music, and I'm always inspired by the underground, and I'm always inspired by what's what's bubbling and what's innovative. But like, I guess like if if we're doing it for the long haul, I, I just need to know that we're like. We're investing in someone that's like really is thinking like that. Yeah, and invested in the art. And it may not necessarily translate to they have a degree from such and such a school in music. Oh, no. Definitely not. Absolutely you know what not. I mean? No. But no. it's it's also like you're saying, the way that they're just thinking about the art in itself is is super important. Yeah. Um Cool. So, you know, I read an article in The Fader from 2015 um, where you guys mentioned that Lucky Me is almost a genre in itself. Um, so how do you think that genre has changed over time? And if it has, how has the process changed to identify the artists that kind of align with, uh, the genre, so to speak? Um, wow. Big, big statement there. Are you sure you <laughs> said that? I don't know if we would say that. I, I mean, if you want to, if, 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 you know, if that's not true, I don't have to ask that question. That's fine. No, it's, <laughs> yeah. no, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's all good. I think, I think people do put us on a certain shelf and the artists that we work with all fit beside each other. And because we do emphasize like family and the way that all the artists intersect so much that facilitates this thing that it's like a lucky me sound, but. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you exactly uh, what you said. So it doesn't, so I didn't botch it. You said, <laughs> you said lucky me as an idea is the genre. There you go. Damn, that's like the pretentious <laughs> thing I would definitely say. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we are into hip hop as a sort of the street that yeah. we live on. Like in terms of like the references for everything that we have mm-hmm. come from hip hop, jazz, and black music classically. Yeah, but like what is coming out is us trying to find our place and our contribution to it that would feel suitably unique and contemporary and Mm -hmm. and tends to come out with this sort of extra uh, twist of like electronic music and the design that we bring to it and being from like nowhere near any rappers 
Mm-hmm. That was a big thing for a long time. It was just like why it was so fruity and so crazy was because we were filling up the entire song ourselves because we couldn't get vocalists. And yeah, right. all these all these conditions, <laughs> you know, or Jack Green, even in terms of dance music, why there's lots of sort of mess with R&B vocals there is because he didn't know the vocalist. If he knew the vocalist, he'd be making his own weekend tape. Yeah, so, that's crazy. You know, for us, it was about proximity to the vocalists. And like, with all respect to all the Scottish hip hop guys that I came up with in those, that early club night, none of them were like, oh, you're phenomenal. You're like, I was still like on the jock of all the US independent hip hop that I was into. So for us, like we end up being understood as electronic music, but I think I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't claim it. I don't know much about it really. It's for right. us, it's always been this thing of like, I mean, when I was reading music mags like 15 years ago, you would always hear like Public Enemy, well, or LP, Company Flow, stuff like that. It was mm-hmm. all like hip hop's meant to sound different every year. That's that's yeah. built, that's built into the project. Mm-hmm. And if you're saying we're too weird to be understood as like centrist hip hop, well, tough. You're wrong. Like you're not getting what hip hop is. Hip hop isn't a formula, it, it's an aesthetic, it's an idea of like what, it's a response to like what DIY music is now. Yeah. And I would say like, well, that's kind of what we do. It's like mm-hmm. we're dealing with samples, we're dealing with the software that's available to us and we're trying to break it, fuck with it, make something that's responding to it. So I see us within a lineage of that. Right, absolutely. I, sorry, I can't remember what the question, yeah, it was about the genre. The genre for me, I actually... <laughs> I don't know if anyone cares, but if anyone ever asked us like what we were making, we always said hip hop, probably to our detriment because no one relates to it. They probably don't, you know, anyone that feels like they are like the defining voice on what hip hop is, would probably say you're absolutely not. Yeah. But for me, that was like way cooler and way more credible to be like, no, actually I've just listened to that. Um, and what we make is just our own version of it. Then to be like, this is, trap music and it's our <laughs> own subgenre of this it, it's it's wave or whatever you want to call it i think that's been a really short-termist thing the dance music in america in particular that's to do with like trend cycles and the commodity of these things and the burn yeah. rate of like two years of touring yes. we're like nah that's not really what we're trying to do we're just trying to make records with we're just trying to make a new clips album <laughs> yeah yeah like, honestly so it's like um I'm, I'm saying that that's quite reductive. That's not fair of like some of the signings we have now who are not trying to make a new clips album. But like in terms of like where this started and the sort of idea yeah, and origin, that, that, yeah, that's what we were thinking about. Really. Right. So as far as, yeah, we've always been really reluctant of like people called it Aqua Crunk when Rusty started like fusing bits of like Detroit techno with hip hop and crunk and stuff like that. And certainly in the club, we were playing loads of like southern hip hop. Yeah. But um, people threw names at us and we've just kind of swerved them. <laughs> right, right. The trap music thing was like a big one for us, obviously. And if we had like, you know, followed that, I think we, would have, we wouldn't have had such long careers, really. Yeah. And I, I think that's the kind of energy that somebody like me and I'm sure other, other fans of the label feel is that you guys are kind of riding your own path and not really confined to boxes or anything like that. You know, like the brand is so strong for that. Which kind of leads me to my next point, like, you know, the artists that you guys work with 
And, you know, forgive me for my naivete, if this sounds ignorant or whatever, but they're, they're, they're more likely considered left field than not for, for a good amount of people on purpose. Right. I mean, like, like you just said, you're, you're avoiding genre statements and you're avoiding being put in a box. And when I say left field, I mean it in the most, in the best way possible. No, in this situation. Absolutely. Right. I don't think I feel comfortable with pop. Right. Exactly. So how do you take artists that are seemingly quote unquote left field and present them to the mainstream in a way that you have and have the mainstream actually absorb those artists? You know, you've had, you've, you've had, you know, all your artists collaborate with people like Kanye West and at the same time, um, kind of be absorbed in this way where, you know, like I told you over email, my last night in Paris in 2015 was at a Cashmere Cat show and it was packed out with, with people from all different colors and creeds and, and people, you know, at, at, at my, at my, uh, at my school that were in my study abroad program, you know, a lot of them were listening to, to pop music, but at the same time, we were all at that Cashmere Cat show, right? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you position That's artists amazing. like that in a way to, you know, while they're remaining themselves and quote unquote left field be absorbed by such a large audience like you have, you know? We always like just double down on difference and novelty and it takes an awareness of like the way that every other similar label or artist or is, is handling similar music to us. We will just always try and find something that's very idiosyncratic brand identity for the artist that is their own. So for Magnus Cashmere Cat, we really worked with him on like what his references were. They were like, at the time, no one knew what he looked like. If he was a he, it was, mm-hmm. he was very shy. He didn't want mm-hmm. press. We didn't run press images. We ran press images were like photos of friends of his. Um, the record cover, we made it so close to just pure black by setting a black and white image really dark that it was just really quiet and just trusted that that's, mm-hmm. that's what that guy needed at that time. Um, and like really worked on a logo form that was like a classic kind of serif type face that felt totally different from everyone else at the time. And you know when you've done the work well, because generally when people go on, like he's gone on to his deal with Benny um, and that logo form still shows up every now and again. And that's like, right, cool. Well, I did a good, I did a good thing there. They can carry that forward. Um, it's about positioning in a unique way. And that's not going to be new to any mm-hmm. of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the difference between doing it well and doing it badly are just down to like how intelligent are the team working on it or how nuanced are they to identify that. But for me, the only education I had formally in anything music or anything music adjacent, well, it wasn't music, it was design. Mm-hmm. So I studied communication. I was thinking about graphic design. When we came up, we were like, Music blogs were a thing, MySpace was a thing, and yeah. everything was glow. Everything was like new rave looking. Um, Lunas was wearing like an, an all over print snood. Like everything was very based. And the way that we find like a point of difference for what we were doing is we just made this thing look like a museum identity. Mm. Like tightened it up, we made it more formal. We, we communicated at a time where everything felt really like you know, kind of low rent, disposable, fun. Yeah. Like 
spectra being fun we made it our stuff try and look like it was a bit tighter and um, we took like our first flyer for our club was like soldier boy photoshopped or hurricane chris photoshopped into a samori shisato lookbook <laughs> you know what i mean that relationship of like we're going to take our references and we're going to handle it like it's something people need to respect and pay attention to and and uh yeah so we just tried to make it look like we were a bit more of an institution we had our shit together and yeah that, i mean i don't think there's anything that anyone can sort of glean from that really it's just that like it's something we're thinking about all the time and part of the conversation and part of the process is like what's everyone else doing what's right for them how do we position it differently and sort of trust in that and i think naturally when you're sort of taking like an electronic kind of pop producer like cashmere cat and what he was trying to do and bringing in all these like references of like classic kind of new wave cinema and shit like that. Right. That aesthetically is opening it up to like all these other fans that might speak to that idea of like when you went to social club and saw, saw him play, it just, it maybe just appeals to people in, that, in a different way. Whereas everything else is still being ridiculously sort of defined by genre and other aesthetics. It's like, we're like, yeah, I mean, but there's so much more like that can inspire something. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm ranting. I hope this is helpful in any no, way. Like, no, we love so ranting good. here at the Music Business Podcast. It's, it's, you know, it's funny that you say that because this is probably like the third or fourth episode in a row. Someone has said like, oh, I'm rambling, but that's exactly, that's, that's the conversation we're having. You know what I mean? That's exactly. Every time we've what? listened to these, they're so like vocational and direct and to the point in terms of strategy. And I'm just saying like, we don't have a lot well, of strategy. <laughs> To, to be real, Sam, you know, before we before we record episodes, he's like, let's get super tactical. And I'm always the one that's like, yo, but let's also get to know the story. And that's how we kind of balance each other. So this is me trying to be more tactical. So this is going time, off from like, yeah, no, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, bro, this is exactly the episode I want. Like, whatever, Sam. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, that's 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 kind of the, the the general energy of how we balance things out. But honestly, you know, lack of strategy is a strategy too, in a lot of ways. So um I think. I think whatever whatever y'all are doing, it's working. <laughs> and you saying and you saying whatever you're doing, whether or not that goes into the confines of traditional strategy, is a point in itself. So you know. Thank you. You're an absolute sure. gentleman. Yeah. No, <laughs> I think it's like potentially what we're doing and always sort of trusting in sort of the, the latest sort of avant-garde idea or yeah. or constantly like going back into the well of like finding like new artists that are sort of yeah. being progressive means that you're just your progress is like steady and you're really building these like diehard fans right but it's hard to compete in a culture that's like everything's so visibly kind of numerical in terms of like socials and stuff like that like we're not we're not popping like that we have our <laughs> core we know who that is and we know that every few years we're going to have one of those touchstone moments where we change things again. And that's right. exactly what we want to do. That's who we are. That's what we're doing. That's awesome. Uh, but it's, it, I appreciate it. It doesn't, um, it's, it's a, it's a completely different model, I think, to like breaking something out of TikTok. Yeah. And that's something that you can do when, you know, the company is five, you know, varies between five to 10 people. It's like kind of stay nimble and, and move with, move yeah. with what's working so 100 
So for for the artists on your roster that have collaborated with like these huge US acts, you know, Ariana Grande, Kanye West, I guess for, you know, how 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 does some of those things come together? Like what is that what does that look like? You know, you're doing your own thing. Is it at that point, is it like, you know, how do you get in a room with some of those people? Are they reaching out or is it is it is it, you know, what well, what does that A and R process look like? It's changed quite a lot, that game over the last five years, because it used mm-hmm. to I used to have a much more tactical role in terms of like doing a lot more of the song procurement on behalf of the producer talent that we were mm-hmm. working with and being the guy that like Hardmore would be like, can you try and explore this collaboration? And just trying to find my way through like the art of writing the good one-line email to the manager. Mm-hmm. Um, but now more and more I'm seeing less of that collaboration process happening through A&Rs and through management actually. It's, artists are leading this themselves through DM. And I guess for me, it's much more about like trying to build that confidence. Um, and also, I, I think it has a different job on the back end of the song being cut because when they've got that kinship between each other and they've done like a meaningful collab and they've built it that way through their own communication. Yeah. That's sending parts remotely, but they've like cut a song, they've been speaking about it, they've made two changes to it. And before I'm hearing it, I'm much more remote from the process now. I'm hearing it. It's a song that both parties are really happy with. The buy-in's already there on the collaboration, and that's really helped us. Um, but in the past, it was just like, how short and impactful an email can I write? And it was like learning that signing off with yours sincerely to certain managers is just <laughs> nowhere. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that smile and handshake your way into the industry was really tough. Um, and the few like yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would argue that, like, alongside just trying to find your way with that, finding that language for those collaborations has just been also making sure that you're also doing your own thing and you're building a compelling brand because it's that quality that people are attracted to. And we see this every day. This is very intuitive to everyone. I'm sure that, like, if an artist has a brand, then the collaborations somewhat facilitate themselves because people understand the sort of aura around the music and they go all right, I want that sonic quality. Like, there's something I really want from S-Type. I'm going to him for it. You know, I want a big anthemic, like, banger, basically. Like, that's that's the guy that makes that thing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. So is that a bit of a cop-out to say, like, I, t- I just tell them to Instagram DM people? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. It's I like, think more, more I- of that's, like, what's happening. I think if anything, it points to the fact that people really need to have solidified and strong brands and may point to um, the content that you put it, that you put out on social media, helping solidify that brand. So those Instagram DMs come with a, with a punch as opposed to it seeming like it's seemingly from a random person, um, which is, which is, you know, which is how it's changed. It's changed the relationship I, I know of between a few managers and their artists and what the managers do versus what they used to do. And, you know, it changing over time, you know, makes complete sense. Um, and there's definitely like still we'll still reach out on behalf of yeah. this stuff you know but I see it more about there's still a lot of work to be done from the point there's consensus they're making a record you know I'll, I'll still like work with someone on like an album and be like right what features are you thinking okay what about this person what about this person Adam Keys blah, blah. and I'll help steer the project or influence the project or build out you know that's probably a better way of putting it it's just kind yeah. of fill out the idea right collaborate with me then i would ask the artist to lead on the outreach but i'm mm-hmm. here to make sure the deal is in place to make sure the manager feels secure about the follow-up with it and know that the team is tight and that it's going to be a well orchestrated rollout 
So then that's right. a part of it. And that's, that's really all the manager wants to know, right? Is that like the communication is going to be good. And I'm definitely there for that. I just don't think like from start here, you know, just sending emails out, I don't think you cut records because the proximity of the manager to the artist is so remote now, or the A&R to the artist, that they're just not setting the timesheet. Right. The artist, if, if the artist's going to going to write that song and actually follow something through, they're not doing it for the, for the advance. They're not right. Like, you know, I just think, or maybe it's just the type of artist that I'm reaching out to. I think if you're reaching out to like big rappers, it's, they're, they're actually not doing it for the money. They're probably doing fine. You know what I mean? I yeah. Think, like, they're doing it because they understand like what creatively the projects ought to be. You know, right. I, I right. think that makes sense. I hope that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I guess the last point I really want to hit on is, uh, is Bauer's nomination for a Grammy, Planets Mad. It's funny, I was trying to think of the questions I could ask about this, but there's obviously so many questions you can ask about a campaign for an album that results in a Grammy nomination. So I guess um, from the perspective of Lucky Me, how did some of the marketing come together for it in order to cultivate into something like this? And what was kind of, what was kind of the, what do you think were the inflection points in that campaign that allowed for, that kind of paved the way for, for this nomination? This year has given us like, a rare focus to the project. And it's yeah. been, we've, we have had other projects to work on. We had this like score for an HBO series called Industry. And um, I mean, there's been other albums I'm looking at the release schedule, but the, we had all the parts delivered for Planets Mad before we went into it. It was already a provocative title for that album, <laughs> pre-pandemic. You know, and it was kind of like, it was a demo name of a track that Harry had. Um, and we just thought, that's it. That's the album name. That's mm-hmm. like, where did he even pull that from? <laughs> but of course, he was just, he just made a crazy record and it felt kind of anarchic. And we were just like, this speaks to this moment, even pre-pandemic in terms of what was going on politically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just, yeah, I just thought people would resonate to it. And he was like, keen to stress, this isn't like a political project, but like, is speaking to something like kind of broader. And then he came with this whole sci-fi story that he'd worked on with his, his brother, some premise of like a movie of like another planet appearing above the earth. <laughs> um, and this whole sci-fi story that comes from these like wacky aliens and an mm-hmm. alien for every song sort of thing. Um, so he was really like doing work on like world building and we had this record delivered and we had an outline of like basically realizing this world for a visual album um, before the pandemic. So we mm-hmm. commissioned, um, we had our animators up to the studio when we were writing it because we just knew what we were making. Yeah. So that would have been like February 2009 with the first projects and then we finished the project in the summer. And then we had like five, six months of commissioning. Really like understood what the marketing timeline would be around November. And that's when we um, were getting delivery of the, the visual album. Um, and then worked like all this year on the, the sort of rollout for this thing. That the story of it in lockdown is, has very much been about community. You know, it's mm-hmm. been fan first. And it's been about Harry on Twitch making a new diehard audience. I think before this campaign, like people knew off Bauer, but they didn't know his personality. They didn't know he was like 
such an affable, smart guy. It was just right. like, a total natural to the platform of like speaking direct to fans. You knew that from sitting in the studio with him, that there's never a dull moment. He's constantly sort of talking. He's just one of the happiest people I know. And that's been a really sort of necessary energy for, for fans this year. You know, he's yeah. built a community around it through Discord, through Twitch. Um, and I think in another year, we wouldn't have pivoted quite so appropriately. You know, I think like the time it's afforded us and the focus it's afforded us has really benefited the project because it's not been about those like temple videos dropping. The, yeah. On release day, we dropped a visual album that's 45 minutes long. And, you know, it's going to do its thing. It, it, it impacted as it should, but the music videos along the way were being buried. Music press were on furlough. The pre-release campaign was barely responding. Yeah, what responding, where all the energy was was with a fan base in Twitch and in Discord, and I think they've really carried the project. And they've, you know, Harry has worked hard to give this project intention for the fans. So it becomes like a cultural, like a bit of a meme. The idea of like what Planet's Mad was, and the whole world around it was so rich. They had all these like Pokemon cards and like. I place so much importance on the small stuff on this one because it's like that's the stuff that people connected with. It's the stuff in the background of the music video that we talked about. Like, what does that mark on the wall mean? What does that graffiti mean? That's the stuff that's like that time and depth and the creative has allowed people to talk about and discuss it for much longer. Yeah. And has given a longer tale to the project. And then because he's like regularly on Twitch, it keeps purposing and surfacing the music. And then we've come with remixes and secondary stuff, the Twitch tape that we just dropped. Yeah. We had this like offering of like a second phase campaign. Then response of like, we'd pulled our release date for the protests um, in respect to George Floyd and everything that was going on internationally. Mm. And we observed days here, obviously, but we were just kind of thinking about like, well, what do we do with the company? And all this stuff was, was ha- happening over our first dedicated release date. Right. Um, and so we've had to be like really responsive to what's happening in the culture because it's just, it's a hectic time. I think in 2019, I would have argued that Twitter and Instagram are no longer very purposeful for music, that mm-hmm. migration out of them for music is just, it's, it's just the bad tools for what we need them to do. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, like the tone of conversation on Twitter has become politics and Instagram has become a shop and influencer marketing. Neither of these things really facilitate integration with music very well. Um, and this year, more than ever, it's like, I don't think people were going to those big social platforms for consumption of music in the cinema. I think they had a different purpose to people. So it was like, right, let's shop, let's get out of the way and let's go somewhere else. Right. I love it when, you know, a couple of our episodes speak to each other. And I think that um, what you kind of mentioned about building this community is exactly what um, our our episode about the Grammy process kind of solidifies also. We asked Shannon Herber about, um, you know, she works for the Grammys. Like, what, what can people do to kind of be in front of um potential voters and she was and she said the exact same thing be a part of the community like do do as much as you can to get to know your audience get to know the people in the music industry at large um and i think a lot of that is aligns with what you guys have done you know you mentioned twitch uh live streaming and, and and twitch is all about obviously uh you know building a community and supporting that community um and it seems like it worked super well for, for yeah, the album 
it's not necessarily like a model for everyone, but it's the model mm-hmm. for him, right? You know, so right. some people aren't eligible for that. They're not like capable. Yeah. All the skills, like the stuff that you can't teach power. Right. just good at in that platform. It's, it's like, it's suitable for him. So we owe a lot of it to him. And of course the music's great on that project. The, the creative is incredible. And I do think that's helped. And I think also being a small team, when we came out, we, we put out the record, we spent longer than we should have putting together our second phase. Um, but we hadn't give up on, given up on the, the, the targets of, of a Grammy. It was, yeah. in, it was at the beginning of the year we were thinking about like the references on the record were all like very older dance acts like Fatboy Slim and Chemical Brothers and stuff like that. And we were like, right, well, what makes a crossover dance record now? Because dance music lives in like these very defined columns of like support in terms of the services and like the idea of like you don't have an MTV dance act that no you don't have a crossover dance act that's like indie fans and hip-hop fans listening to this is their one dance record that's not really how things are exposed so like how mm-hmm. do we put Bauer in that place mm-hmm. and anyway so we, we kind of got the second phase together that was about all these remixes and a sort of deluxe edition a DVD edition of the album and we have walked this Grammy nomination through the committee, I think just genuinely off impact. We didn't canvas, we didn't do a pre, we didn't do like a first phase campaign. It's, it's, land, it's, it's happened and we've quickly like swung into action for it and we had all this mm-hmm. stuff ready to go anyway. So it looks like a beautifully um, organized campaign. Actually what it is is a very late second phase campaign. <laughs> it's actually gonna do us really well on, on this drive for a Grammy. But now we're just, yeah, we're speaking to like 13,000 people or out of that 13,000 sort of Grammy voters, those who would vote in the dance category, which is one of the more significant categories because it's yeah. playing the pop. But yeah, it's, it, you know, there will be some recognition vote for Bauer in that category because of Harlem Shake and what he did to the chart rules and his story. But for us, it's like, it's about letting those people know that like he spent eight years now, like, becoming like a leader in that genre and, doing yeah. something different and thinking about the way that dance music should interact with pop and with with hip-hop and that's and then he's but he's made this great dance record that's an instrumental record without guests so yeah i just um yeah who knows what's going to happen man because it's like my first grammy campaign and we're working on a period where like the industry shut down yeah and it's so interesting to me it's like learning all these processes for like what these Grammy campaigns ought to look like. Yeah. So we're, we're, in terms of like our learning as like a team, it's been like an insane experience this year. I'm, I'm sure. Very grateful for it. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, best of luck, man. Like, you know, like I said in our email correspondence, the album's great. Um, and I think, you know, when you, for a lot of the records that end up being nominated for prestigious, um, you know, awards, like, you know, best dance electronic album, those albums often feel like moments in time. And that's like the best way that I can describe them is they feel they feel a little bit more they feel a little bit more especially for that um, especially for that category um, it feels a little more significant you know I'm not I won't mention other categories that I don't feel are as, as significant but <laughs> like the, the Grammys has its issues it's a flawed structure but it's like I'm I'm really only just understanding it now because I'm I'm sat in London like staring at America trying to work out. <laughs> What it, what it all means and like yeah what what that weekend tweet was like parsing out like how much i 
understand the decision making there at the at the committee level of who gets the nom. But um, yeah, it, it, for me, it's like I, I still feel like we're such a, we're so new to this. We're such rank outsiders that I think it's yeah, it's very, it's very cool to be given the acknowledgement. Actually, yeah, of course, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, cool, man. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. I had a great conversation. Um, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. Sam, questions for you. Yeah, man. Yeah. After we get off this call, feel free to ask me whatever whatever you want, man. I'm I'm totally down. I'm I'm on break right now, so I'm off for vacation. So I'm literally just chilling. I'll probably play some video games later and stuff. But um, yeah, yeah. It was uh, Perfect. it was it was great. It was great speaking to you and, and hearing about this label. You know, I'm a huge fan. Sam's a huge fan. And uh, best of luck. Best of luck at the Grammys this year, dude. Thank you so much. Appreciate right. you. I'll see you later. Peace. Yeah, man. You know, like I said, that episode was was super awesome, super insightful. Um, always great to hear the backdrop of a company like Lucky Me that's just been able to slice themselves through the mainstream despite being that quote unquote left field that I spoke of in the intro. And definitely excited that people, you know, made it to the outro and listened to the whole thing because there's a lot of stuff to learn. And I think, you know, one of the big takeaways that I get from it is no matter what, everything that we do, everything that we do as music business people has to lead back to the art, you know, all the marketing, all the stuff that seems business and totally separated from the art itself has to be tied to it. You know, it's got to start with the artist. It's got to start with the art. It's got to start with being that fan and growing from that fandom to a place where you actually want to support this artist every single day. So thank you everybody for listening. I want to always give a special shout out to the patrons. We're going to be changing up um, how we how we approach Patreon going into 2021 and we're going to be changing some of the tiers. So super excited to announce those very soon. Um, best of luck to Dom on the, on the Grammy nom and hopefully Grammy win for Bauer. Um, and as always, you know, leave, leave a review for us. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you didn't like. And everybody have a great 2021.